Section 9 of The Kidnapping of President Lincoln and Other War Detective Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Josh Kibbe. The Kidnapping of President Lincoln and Other War Detective Stories by Joel Chandler Harris. The Kidnapping of President Lincoln, Part 3. When Bethune and Mr. Sanders went to breakfast the next morning, they were escorted to a table at which sat John Omohundro, who saluted them in the most familiar manner. Bethune, whose temperament lacked that off-hand heartiness which is sometimes attractive and sometimes repelling, bowed coldly. Mr. Sanders, who was heartiness itself on almost every occasion, smiled vacantly at Omohundro, remarking, "'I've seed your face, Summers, I really do believe.' "'Why, certainly,' said Omohundro in his drawling voice. I traveled with you from Albany to New York. That's so, exclaimed Mr. Sanders. You're the feller that helped the omen's baby while she give it castor oil. Well, you're a mighty handy man, but I've been in such a buzz and racket and seed so many folks that I'd never unknowed you again. They talked on indifferent subjects until the meal had been dispatched, and then they sat in the reading room of the hotel and talked business. What about your program? inquired Omohundro. It's foolhardy, but I'm willing to go into it on conditions. I mean this kidnapping business. "'It's as easy as falling off a log,' replied Bethune. "'Lots easier,' remarked Sanders. "'But—now you're beginning to say something. "'But—but but how are you going to get away? "'You don't know a step of the road. "'How are you going to get Mr. Lincoln safely to the south?' "'Trust to luck, I reckon,' replied Bethune. "'What I was trying to say when you jumped in betwixt me and my words "'was that the job is easy, but twould be a pity to put it through.' "'You've said something again,' remarked Omohundro. Mr. Lincoln has the hardest time of any human being I ever saw. He reminds me of my father. He puts me in mind of all the good men I've ever knowed. He takes them all in, said Mr. Sanders. He's a good deal like you, Bethune declared. Well, I wish to the Lord I was more like him, said Mr. Sanders solemnly. I'll tell you what, fellers, that man has looked troubled in the eyes so long that he pities everybody in the world but himself. Frank, I'll go into this business if you'll let me do the engineering, if you'll put it in my hands. "'Oh, I've no objection to that,' <laughs> assented Bethune with a short laugh. "'He's so different from what I expected. "'By George, don't you believe it would break his heart to be taken away from here?' "'Mr. Sanders pursed up his mouth and looked at the ceiling. "'No, oh, 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 t'wouldn't break his heart,' he announced after some reflection. "'He's a good strong man, and from the look he has in his eye, "'he's seen so much trouble that he's ready to shake hands with it whatever he meets it, "'knowing pretty well that he'll get some fun out in it somehow or somewheres. "'You leave it to me, Frank, leave it to me.' "'Well,' said Omohundro, "'if it's to be done, tomorrow night is the time, "'between ten and twelve. "'The nearer ten, the better.' "'Mr. Stanton usually calls about half-past twelve or one. "'Mr. Lincoln may ask you to stay to supper. "'If he does, say yes and thank you, too. "'If you take supper here, a carriage will be waiting for you at the door. "'If there is more than one vehicle near the hotel entrance, "'the driver on your carriage will say, "'Whoa, Billy. "'If you don't take supper here,' The carriage will drive into the White House grounds precisely at ten o'clock. The driver of the carriage will stay with it until he hears pursuers, or until you meet another conveyance in the road driven by a country chap. If you are pursued, one of you must be on the driver's seat to take the lines when my man retires, and then you'll have to take the consequences and get out the best way you can. I tell you candidly, I don't see how you are going to get out with the President, and but for orders from Captain McCarthy, I wouldn't make a move in it. I'm fond of Mr. Lincoln. I feel like he's kin to me. Well, there are bigger principles at issue than kinfolks and presidents, remarked Bethune with some emphasis. That's so, assented Mr. Sanders, but I wish from my heart he was more like some of the other presidents we have had in North America. Good night, said Omohundro. We may never see one another again. I'm going to help you out all I can, but I can't say that I wish for your success. Nor me, neither, commented Mr. Sanders. The next day found Bethune and Mr. Sanders at the White House. While Mr. Lincoln was busy, they walked around the grounds with Elise Clopton. They were not in a very gay humor, as may well be supposed, and it was a relief to their minds to listen to the lady's chatter. She related her experiences from the time she left Shady Dale to visit her family in Maryland, and if her reports were correct, she had been through many daring adventures. She was quite a heroine in her own estimation, and there is no doubt that, frivolous and giddy as she was, she possessed both courage and presence of mind. Mr. Stanton paid her a high tribute when he told Mr. Lincoln that she was quite the most dangerous and daring spy 
that had operated around Washington, and he wanted to make an example of her. As Mr. Sanders remarked on more than one occasion, there were good points about the lady if you didn't have to live on the same lot with her. Curiously enough, she had conceived a romantic friendship for Mr. Lincoln. "'Isn't he the dearest man?' she said to her companions as they strolled about, enjoying the warm sunshine. "'I think he is just grand. I am dead in love with him. Oh, he is the most fascinating human being I ever saw. I used to hate him, clasping her hands and throwing her head back, and now I love him. How can our newspapers abuse him as they do?' Presently Tad, Mr. Lincoln's little son, came from the rear of the house with his goats, and was soon joined by his father, who was assiduous in his attentions to the lad. Elise wanted to go where they were. "'Now, Elise, don't let's make geese of ourselves,' said Mr. Sanders. "'The man hardly has time to speak to his family. Let him alone.' "'Oh, don't you believe that,' said Elise. "'Why, he's the most devoted man to his family I ever saw. He allows them to impose on him right and left. It's perfectly grand to see how patient he is. And look at that child's clothes. See what a misfit they are.' "'It's the fashion, I reckon,' responded Mr. Sanders. Elise laughed merrily. "'Ha, ha, ha, ha! The fashion! Why, the world never saw such a fashion as that. Well, a president and his family don't have to be in the fashion. When it comes to that, they're mighty nigh as independent as me, I reckon.' The president heard Elise Clopton laugh, and seeing Bethune and Mr. Sanders with her, joined the group, Tad following with his horned team. "'You seem to be worried this morning, Mr. Lincoln,' said Elise with one of her brightest smiles. "'Yes.' "'We all have to worry about something at some time or another,' replied the President. "'There's a man down in Tennessee they are trying to hang, "'because he wandered off from camp one night, "'and his mother's at this end of the line crying her eyes out. "'I have spent half the morning trying to get a dispatch to the officer in command. "'Before they hang or shoot the boy, I want to see the record.' <sighs> "'But it's all right now,' he said with a sigh. "'They walked a little in silence. "'Finally Mr. Lincoln turned to Mr. Sanders. "'Does your old President have much opposition?' Not among them that he can get his hands on, but Joe Brown is after him with a sharp stick, and Bob Toombs rares around, and they manage to keep the water warm, if not a bilin'. The state's rights plaster does pretty well when you slap it on someone else, but when the other fellow slaps it onto you, it burns like fire. How is that? Mr. Lincoln asked, his eyes fairly dancing with amusement. Well, Jeff Davis was put in to slap the state's rights plaster onto you all, and now you can hardly get a law passed, but what Joe Brown bobs up with the state's rights plaster and slaps it onto Mr. Davis? Mr. Lincoln roared with laughter. I don't think it's fair, Mr. Sanders went on, but some of the boys apparently get a good deal of fun out in it. The president's unrestrained laughter attracted the attention of Tad, who left his goats to the temporary care of Elise and went running to Mr. Sanders. I wish you'd stay here all the time, he said in a pleading tone. What for, I'd like to know, inquired Mr. Sanders, lifting the lad in his strong arms. Because you make Papa laugh, replied Tad. He laughs that way with me sometimes, but I want to hear him laugh that way when he's with grown people. That puts me in mind of the little chap that wanted a candy elephant, said Mr. Sanders. He worried about it so till his pappy sent off and bought a dollar's worth of sugar, and his mammy put it in the preserve kettle, poured in a couple of gourdfuls of water, and stewed it down, and then, after so long a time, took it out, pulled it the best she could, and then built it up into some kind of animal that a blind man might take to be a rough imitation of a wooden elephant. Then she called him the little chap and turned the elephant over to him. Well, he took this elephant out of the woodshed and started in on him, but he hadn't gnawed his way no further than one of the hind legs till he was the sickest boy you ever saw. And after that he'd turn pale and cry if anybody so much as said candy elephant to him. <laughs> and no wonder, exclaimed Tad. That's a fact, responded Mr. Sanders. No wonder. And I wouldn't be here a week before your pappy would pull out his handkerchief and cry if he be so much as heard the name of Sanders. Would you? cried Tad, turning to his father. Why, certainly not, replied the president. Satisfied, the lad slipped from Mr. Sanders' arms and went skipping to his goats. "'I'll tell you the truth, my friend,' Mr. Lincoln went on, laying a familiar hand on Mr. Sanders' shoulder. "'You have no idea what a joyous relief it is to meet a man who knows how to say things, and who doesn't want a post-office for himself, or his wife's cousin, or who doesn't want to take command of all the armies in the field, or take entire charge of the government, or who hasn't some complaint to make or some objection to offer. Why?' It's like seeing the sun again after a couple of months of rainy weather. I reckon it's worse now than ever before, remarked Mr. Sanders. They were walking along together, Bethune having lagged behind, intent on his own reflections. Yes, I reckon it is, said Mr. Lincoln. If it wasn't for Stanton, who likes to have his hand in everything, I don't know what I'd do. He can stand up to more hard work and worry than any man I ever saw. Now, if you had a machine full of intelligence that was greedy for all the work you could pour into the hopper, you wouldn't mind it much if it pinched your fingers once in a while, 
or took off a fingernail now and then, would you? I just reckon not, responded Mr. Sanders, with emphasis. Well, that is the reason I take no offense when Stanton cusses me out behind my back, or when he cuts up his capers before my face. I see, said Mr. Sanders. When you want to bluff some feller that's a little too smart, you fetch out Stanton. It puts me in mind, in some ways, of Roach's race hoss. How is that? Mr. Lincoln inquired. Why, there was a young chap in our settlement by the name of Waters, and he had a quarter hoss that he vowed and declared could outrun anything on four legs, including a steam engine. Well, he bragged about his hoss and went on, so that one day, old man Johnny Roach, who had about a thimbleful too much of dram, up and said he had a racer that could beat Waters' hoss so fur that he'd turn and meet him halfway coming back. Waters banded him for a bet in a trial, and he got both. They set the day, and when the time come, Waters was there with his pony, and presently Uncle Johnny's youngest boy come galloping up on a steer. Now, everybody in the country knowed the steer. He was old as the hills, but he was game, and his horns was a plum curiosity. From the pint of one to the pint of t'other was mighty nigh nine feet, and he had a way of shaking him that made folks stand round. Waters began to take water right off. Says he, that ain't no hoss. I never said he was a hoss, says old man Johnny. I said he was a racer. Well, he ain't no racer, says Waters. That's yet to be decided, says Johnny Roach. The money's up, says he, and I'm going to walk off with it. Waters hummed and hawed, but it didn't do no good. Get ready, says old man Roach. Some of you men give the word. Well, says Waters, I don't know whether your steer can run or not. Be to get back, he's liable to do some damage, and I'll not run my hoss again him. So Roach's boy rode the steer over the course, and old man Johnny pulled off home with the stakes in his pocket. Mr. Lincoln seemed to enjoy this anecdote very much. He said there was very pungent morale in it, which could be given a variety of applications, and he forthwith added it to his already large collection of stories. All this while Bethune was wandering about the lawn with head hung down like a boy with the pouts. He was thinking hard, and his thoughts were not pleasant ones. Nan Dorrington gazed at him through the mists of memory with sad eyes. Of the many familiar faces he could remember, only one seemed to wear a smile, and that was the face of Miss Puella Gillum. Bethune came to Washington, it will be remembered, to seize and carry off the president. He had, in fact, hit upon the only plan which was in the least likely to paralyze the North, bring about peace, and establish the Confederacy. Though the Georgian was a young man, he had tolerably fair judgment, and he had already seen that this patient, kindly man, with a bright smile and sad eyes, melancholy at one elbow and mirth at the other, was the sole mainstay and reliance of the vast machine that was carrying on the war. That, but for his provision intact, the halls of the capital and the corridors of the departments would swarm with relentless and ruinous factions. It was true that Bethune's head was full of romantic notions. He had descended from a chivalrous race, and had been reared in a region where chivalry and knightly courtesy were very real things to those who aspired to them, and he now felt himself pulled about by conflicting emotions. He was keen to perform some feat or accomplish some result that would advance the southern cause, and here was the opportunity, and yet the bare idea of carrying it out left a bad taste in his mouth. He was at war with himself. He felt, in a dim, vague way, that the president was the heart of a mystery, the center of a wonderful problem. As in an old picture, a light from some unseen source appeared to fall on the worn face of this man, who, born with the wolf at the door, and in the most abject surroundings, had been lifted up to guide the nation. Bethune had been so wrapped up in his own reflections that his Aunt Elise could hardly make him hear when she called him. He lifted his head and sighed, and then a frown fell on his face as he realized that she was speaking to him. Her frivolity irritated him. Her gushing volubility oppressed him. <laughs> Frank, oh, Frank, she called, laughing. Pray stop thinking about your sweetheart and come with me. The president told me I was not to go outside the gates, but I'm going now just to see what he'll say. Won't you come with me? For answer, Bethune turned sharply away from his aunt. She ran after him. Don't be so cross, Frank, she cried. It's not becoming to you. I wasn't going at all. Do be pleasant. You and old Billy Sanders between you will cause the people here to think I have no standing in my own family. Both of you are very rude. What have I done to deserve it? This last remark was spoken with some show of temper, for the beautiful Elise could be spiteful at times. Nothing, Aunt Elise, replied Bethune, but in your position a little more dignity would be suitable. Elise laughed loudly, but her face was red with indignation. Ha! A professor of etiquette, she cried. Before you try to teach me etiquette, nephew, do learn to be polite and agreeable. Mr. Lincoln, talking with Mr. Sanders some distance away, noticed by the actions of Bethune and his aunt that something was wrong. What's the matter with our young friends, he asked. They seem to be quarreling. Well, it's a family fuss, I reckon, replied Mr. Sanders. 
Frank was never fond of leaves, nor she of him. The lady seems to be somewhat flighty, remarked the president, but I've remarked the symptoms in so many charming women that I rarely notice it now. Mr. Sanders pursed his lips as a country lawyer does when he is about to make some remark which he thinks is unusually profound. Lise is about as good as the common run, I reckon. She's not nigh as flighty as she looks to be. A right smart of it is put on, same as her clothes. When you come to know her, she's got a lot of good pints. Well, all her gabble she never tells all she knows. I don't like her much, but I don't know but what that's my fault. Likely enough it is, said the president. I've had a great opportunity to find out what people think of me. Nine out of ten misjudge or misunderstand my words, my actions, and my motives. You should be president for a little while, friend Sanders, just for the fun of the thing. Me! exclaimed Mr. Sanders. Would I have to have a secretary of war? Why, certainly. That's a part of the game. Well, you'll have to excuse me. I don't mind taking a turn at checkers or marbles or mumblepeg, but that's about the limits of my appetite. No, sir. No plain president for me if there's a secretary of war in the game. I may have to tousle you before I leave this town. If I do and it don't hurt your feelings too much, I am to make a clean, healthy job of it. Mr. Lincoln laughed and excused himself. A great many people had passed them by, going to the White House, some on business, some moved by curiosity, and some impelled by interest and sympathy. "'It takes a heap of people to make a world, friend Sanders,' said the President, as he turned away, "'and I must go and examine some more of the specimens. "'When you get ready to come in, Miss Brandon—I mean Mrs. Clopton—will show you how to avoid the crowd.' "'I hope,' he said, pausing again, "'that you'll take dinner with us.' Maybe you'd prefer to call it supper. About what time, Mr. President? Early candlelight, replied Mr. Lincoln with a twinkle in his eye. The phrase was so familiar that the Georgian took it as a matter of course. Any gal company? inquired Mr. Sanders. No, I think not. Mrs. Lincoln will have some of her friends to dine with her, and we can have a snug little dinner of our own. We'll have a member of Congress who was in Georgia once upon a time, and Stanton threatens to come too. Well, I don't know about Frank Bethune, but none of them can turn my stomach. Stanton says he wants to discover whether you are fish, flesh, or fowl, remarked the president, smiling. Just tell him I'm a plain old snapping turtle from Georgia, with red eyes and cold feet. Mr. Lincoln turned away laughing, and Mr. Sanders was left alone until little Tad came along driving his goats. He fell into conversation with Mr. Sanders, and the talk was so interesting to both of them that they sat flat on the grass. They went from one subject to another, until Mr. Sanders, who was a famous hand with young ones, landed Tad in the midst of that wonderful collection of animal stories with which southern children have been familiar for many generations. The old Georgian told them so simply, and with such apparent confidence in their reality, that the little son of the president accepted them as facts and was, for the time being, in another world, the world that had been created by the Negro romancers who lived long ago. Great statesmen, passed and repassed them as they sat or lay reclining on the grass. Generals of the army, congressmen, civilians, office-seekers, a curious and motley throng, formed part of the procession, but so far as Mr. Sanders and Tad were concerned, they were all phantoms, invisible to the eye. Bethune and his aunt were soon on good terms again, and they made their way slowly back to the White House, evidently thinking that Mr. Sanders had gone in. Presently a servant came out hunting for Tad, "'We have been searching for you everywhere,' the man said. "'Your lunch is ready.' "'Lunch!' cried Tad. He had been brought out of Fableland so suddenly that he could hardly realize his surroundings. "'Won't you come?' he said to Mr. Sanders with appealing eyes. "'Please? Oh, please come.' "'No, I reckon I'd better wait for you out here, or in the pen where they put the office hunters,' said Mr. Sanders. "'We have some extra fine soup, sir,' remarked the servant by way of a suggestion." When Mr. Sanders had been made perfectly sure that whatever pleased the child would be pleasing to his father and mother, he took Tad's hand, and together they went to the children's lunchroom. It is doubtful if Tad ever had another such day. The fun, for him, began when he made a somewhat riotous protest against a bib. "'Don't you wear him?' inquired Mr. Sanders in tones of surprise. "'Well, I allers do,' he turned to the waiter. "'I wished you'd pin one around my neck. I don't feel right with alm.' Then, with a napkin on, he made believe to be a little boy, and he carried out the pretense so solemnly that Tad fairly screamed with laughter. In fact, the youngster reached the point where he'd laugh almost to exhaustion every time Mr. Sanders looked at him. Mrs. Lincoln, hearing this unusual sound, left her guests for a moment and peeped in the door. 
For an instant she couldn't realize the situation. Mr. Sanders was saying, What's your name? And Tad was telling him. To which the reply was, Well, I'm named Little Billy, and I want some syrup in my plate so I can sop it. As Tad could say nothing for laughing, Mr. Sanders went on. One time I was eating a chicken gizzard, and I got to laughing, and the first thing anybody knowed the gizzard was stuck in my goozle. My mammy seed I was choking, and she hit me a lick on the back as hard as a mule can kick, and the gizzard flew out and knocked the cruet stand off on the table. This made me laugh, and my mammy says, "'Supposing you'd have been gnawing on the whole chicken, where'd you be now?' And I says, "'Humph, you better ax where the chicken be.' This was too much for Tad. He slid out of his chair and fell on the floor where he fairly screamed with laughter. The dignified waiter caught the contagion somehow. He turned his back upon the rest and leaned half-bent against the wall, trying to hold his sides with one arm. Mrs. Lincoln ran back to relate the episode to her guests, and in her efforts to tell of the scene she witnessed, her laughter became uncontrollable, and pretty soon she and her guests were in a state bordering on the hysterical. All except one, an elderly lady, the wife of a cabinet minister, who sat looking from one to the other with eyebrows lifted and a countenance expressive of contempt. This lady seized upon this unpropitious moment to take her departure, and the gravity of her demeanor as she bowed herself out was such as to give new cause for laughter. The finishing touch was given when Mrs. Lincoln, who had a keen eye for the ridiculous, so far succeeded in controlling her countenance as to give a swift imitation of the solemn exit of the lady who had retired. This last incident, as free from malice as an innocent caper of a schoolgirl, was duly reported to the cabinet minister's wife, and that lady made it her business from that time forth to spread abroad hints of Mrs. Lincoln's flightiness, and out of these hints, so industriously planted, grew the thousand and one fictions that were scattered up and down the land in regard to the mental condition of this bright lady of the White House. That evening at dinner, after Bethune and Mr. Sanders had been introduced to Mr. Stanton and to Congressman Hudspeth, Mr. Lincoln referred to Tad's enjoyable luncheon, an enthusiastic account of which the lad had already given his father. Mr. Sanders made some humorous remarks on the subject of amusing children. For a time the talk was wholly between these two. Mr. Stanton seemed to be absorbed, though he watched the two Southerners very closely, while Hudspeth's thoughts appeared to be far afield. Finally, Mr. Sanders turned to Mr. Hudspeth and asked him if he had ever been to Georgia. Yes, I had some peculiar as well as some very pleasant experiences there. I allowed I met you there. You lived with Addison Abercrombie, remarked Mr. Sanders. You needn't be ashamed of it, he went on, for Mr. Seward was a school teacher down in that neighborhood years ago. Well, I wonder, exclaimed Mr. Lincoln. Stanton, the governor, has never told us about that. Well, well, I mind him well, Mr. Sanders continued. He was as thin as a rail with a big nose, and his Adam's apple stuck out like a pot leg. He had red hair and a freckled face. Mr. Hudspeth asked about little Crotchet, who was dead, and about Aaron the Arab, in regard to whom Mr. Sanders volunteered the information that he now owned the Abercrombie place. "'What nonsense!' exclaimed Mr. Stanton, almost angrily. "'I mean, sir,' exclaimed Mr. Sanders with a deprecatory gesture, "'that Aaron is by the Abercrombie place like some folks I've seen are about the government. He thinks he owns it, and he don't. They think they're running the government, and they ain't.' Mr. Stanton swelled up like a gobbler, as Mr. Sanders described it afterward, but Mr. Lincoln came to the rescue. Laughing heartily, he cried, <laughs> A fair hit, friend Sanders. You've touched my weak point. I reckon I do put on too many airs. Mr. Sanders had a remark ready, but he felt his foot pressed, and he held his peace. At that moment, Mr. Stanton addressed him. Who gave you a commission to come here? A fellow named Doyle. It was Bethune who answered, and not Mr. Sanders. Doyle gave me a pass from Mr. Lincoln. I regarded it as an invitation. And so it was, said Mr. Lincoln. "'Who invited you?' inquired the secretary, turning his spectacles on Mr. Sanders. "'Well, unlike the stranger at the inn fair. The folks saw him hang around the door, and some of em asked him what he was doing there, and he said, says he, I heard the fiddlin' and the shufflin', and smelt the dram, and I just thought I'd look on and see well done done well.' "'Well, you may say that you had an invitation, too,' remarked Mr. Lincoln. "'I wouldn't have missed knowing you for a good deal. I can vouch for that,' said Mr. Stanton ironically. "'If you can, Mr. Secretary, so much the better.' Mr. Lincoln declared with some emphasis, "'But those gentlemen are my guests. If they are to be catechized and cross-examined, I'm the one to do it.' "'But will you?' inquired the secretary eagerly. "'No, I won't,' replied the president. "'Why, Mr. President,' cried Mr. Sanders, "'you don't pester us one grain.' 
Mr. President, I have just one more question to ask, said the secretary. Fire away, exclaimed Mr. Sanders. Did the man Doyle give you a dispatch to be delivered at the War Department? He did, replied Bethune. I suspected that it was a trap laid for us, opened it, and had it deciphered. I kept a copy of the translation, and will now take occasion to present it to the President, so that he may see how the lives of human beings are trafficked in by those who desire to win Mr. Stanton's favor. We fell into the hands of a man named Autry, but we insisted that he should bring us to the President. He handed the copy of the dispatch to Mr. Lincoln, who read it, rubbing his chin thoughtfully. Then he turned to Bethune, and regarded him with a half-humorous, half-melancholy, but wholly attractive smile. "'May I see this extraordinary dispatch, Mr. President?' asked the secretary, holding out his hand for it. "'You have no objection?' the president nodded to Bethune. "'None in the world, Mr. President,' was the calm and confident reply. "'Well, anyhow, I reckon I'd better put it in my pocket,' said Mr. Lincoln, in his slow, deliberate way. "'It might worry you, Stanton, and it's a matter too trifling for you to be worried about. No, I'll take charge of it myself.' With that, he folded the copy carefully and placed it in an old Morocco pocketbook. He was absorbed in thought a moment or two, drumming on the table with his fingers. Then he lifted his head and laughed, remarking, "'It reminds me of a story I heard.' "'Good night, Mr. President. Good night, Hudspeth,' exclaimed the secretary sharply as he arose from the table. "'You too,' he said, indicating Bethune and Mr. Sanders, "'will hear from me again.' "'My post office is Salem and Gianni,' remarked Mr. Sanders, in his matter-of-fact way. This was too much for Mr. Lincoln, who laughed uproariously as Stanton stalked out. But he suddenly grew grave again. "'I'm always forgetting my dignity,' he declared. "'Stanton is angry, and he has a right to be. But if he had seen this affair,' tapping his pocket, "'he'd have half a regiment on guard here, and he'd keep it up until I went out and dismissed him, as a country showman dismisses his audience.' Congressman Hudspeth had a good many questions to ask about old acquaintances, and he and Mr. Sanders were soon engaged in a friendly discussion over the rights and wrongs of the war. It was a discussion altogether useless, a fact which the President called attention, with the result of putting an end to it. Shortly afterward, Mr. Hudspeth, he being a prominent member of the military committee, excused himself and retired, and Bethune and Mr. Sanders soon followed his example. "'I'd ask you to sit up with me a while,' said the President. "'But I'll have a busy night of it. "'Come tomorrow night about ten. "'We must talk about your trip south. "'Miss Brandon, as she calls herself, "'is very particular, "'and we must try and meet her views. "'You leave her to me, Mr. President,' "'remarked Mr. Sanders suggestively. "'Gladly, gladly, my friend,' "'exclaimed Mr. Lincoln so heartily "'that Mr. Sanders was compelled to laugh, "'and even Bethune smiled. "'Curiously enough, "'neither of the Southerners, "'as they returned to their apartments,' spoke of the scheme which had originally brought them to Washington. Each was anxious that the other should make a suggestion to abandon it altogether, while each, for reasons that will be clear to every masculine mind, hesitated about making such a suggestion. Thus it was that neither mentioned the plan in any shape or form that night or the next day. It was a queer situation, and it was altogether characteristic that Bethune should worry over its embarrassments while Mr. Sanders was inwardly chuckling over its humorous features. It was not until they were about to leave the hotel at the hour agreed upon that a word was said on the subject. "'I reckon you're feeling a little nervous, Frank,' suggested Mr. Sanders. "'Not more than you, I venture,' replied Bethune calmly. As Mr. Sanders had expected a somewhat different reply, he merely pursed his lips as though he were going to whistle and said no more. The carriage was at the door, and Bethune and Mr. Sanders were driven swiftly to the White House. The two Southerners found Mr. Lincoln in high good humor. He welcomed them in the heartiest manner, slapping Mr. Sanders on the back and displaying in the most unaffected manner his delight at seeing two friends from Georgia, as he called them. "'You must have heard good news, Mr. President,' suggested Bethune. "'Well, if I had, I wouldn't tell you fellows. It would be bad news to you. But, as an old friend of mine used to say, no news is good news. And when there's no fuss in the family, and no quarrel about a fence-line, and the cow is giving down her milk, and the hens are laying—' The man who forgets to be happy will miss a mighty good chance. That's so, assented Mr. Sanders. By the way, said Mr. Lincoln, turning to Bethune, what put it into that man's head to charge you fellows with plotting to kidnap the President? Doyle, you mean? Well, Mr. President, he could as easily have charged us with plotting to assassinate the President. I wonder he didn't, since all he had to do was choose the word, replied Bethune. Well, when you two get back, 
"'What will you do to this man?' asked Mr. Lincoln. "'Why, we are in hopes this case will be attended to before we lay eyes on him again,' was the answer. "'Is that so?' exclaimed Mr. Lincoln, sitting bolt upright. Then he laughed lightly, and leaned back again, throwing one of his long legs over the arm of his chair. "'Well!' <laughs> "'Don't be too hard on him.' The president, leaning back with his hands behind his head, gazed at the ceiling in silence for some time, apparently in a profound study. Then he laughed aloud at some amusing thought, and once more sat upright in his chair. "'Now, about this kidnapping business,' he remarked. "'Do you think it would be an easy matter to kidnap the president?' Mr. Sanders gave a gasp of surprise as he turned in his seat. "'Mr. President,' said Bethune, leaning forward and speaking in grave, measured accents, "'Mr. President, it would be the easiest thing in the world.' "'What time is it?' asked Mr. Lincoln. "'About half after ten, replied Mr. Sanders, consulting his silver watch, which was as big as a biscuit and weighed about half a pound. "'Well, Stanton is to be here about half-past eleven, and he usually comes ahead of time.' Now what I want you to do, Mr. Lincoln went on with some eagerness, is to show me how that kidnapping business could be carried out. Let's suppose a case, what we lawyers call a hypothetical case. Let's take it for granted that, in the performance of your duty, as you look at it, you had concluded that the easiest way to achieve what you call your independence is to seize the president and carry him south. Then let us suppose that matters had fallen out pretty much as they have. Here you are, two quick-witted confederates. Now show me how the kidnapping could be carried out. But to Mr. President, exclaimed Bethune, that is precisely... Mr. Lincoln stopped him. I know, I know, he cried, and his voice overbore that of Bethune. No, what did he know? I know how you feel about it, but this is purely a hypothetical case. I am supposed to be taken unawares. Both Bethune and Mr. Sanders had arisen from their chairs partly to conceal their excitement, and partly to seize what seemed to be a providential opportunity. The event had, as it were, been taken out of their hands. They seemed to have no choice in the matter. "'Well, Mr. President, supposing that we had come here on such a mission,' said Bethune, "'it would probably be carried out in this way, making due allowances for emergencies.' He went on to the inner door and looked in. Then he went to the outer door and looked out into the wide entrance. The moment was propitious— he returned, stood by the president's chair, and then touched him sharply on the shoulder. Mr. Lincoln, great emergencies sometimes call for cruel remedies. Bethune's voice was grim in its earnestness. We are two confederates. You are our prisoner. Make no outcry. Not a hair of your head shall be harmed if you obey instructions. The situation is desperate for us, but it is more desperate for you. The president looked into Bethune's eyes and seemed to understand the situation. "'Well, you'd certainly make a fine actor,' he remarked. "'Come, Mr. President, we have not a moment to lose,' said Bethune. "'Let me get my hat,' suggested the president. Having secured this, he said, "'Some sort of weapon is necessary where force is talked of.' "'What is this?' asked Bethune, holding up a pistol. "'And this,' said Mr. Sanders, holding up its mate. "'The argument is concluded, and the witness is with you.' <laughs> remarked Mr. Lincoln with a chuckle. Then he added, "'But kidnapping can't be carried on on foot. I'm a pretty good walker, but if I was to take the studs and lie down on the road, you'd have some trouble.' "'The carriage waits, Mr. Lincoln,' replied Bethune grimly. "'Remember, you are supposed to be going of your own accord.' "'By jing!' exclaimed the President. "'I reckon this is what the play-actors call a full-dress rehearsal.' He went forward very cheerfully, however, when they came to the carriage, the president entered first, Bethune following. Mr. Sanders mounted to the driver's seat. "'Where are you, Sanders?' inquired Mr. Lincoln. "'I'm going to take the air,' Mr. Sanders replied. "'Well, here, swap hats with me. I can't wear mine in here unless we cut a hole in the roof.' Mr. Lincoln leaned from the window and passed his tall hat up to Mr. Sanders, and received in return the soft felt hat that Mr. Sanders wore. The carriage turned into the street and went whistling away in the direction arranged by John O'Mahundro. "'Which way are we going?' the President asked. "'I couldn't say, Mr. President. I'm not familiar with this part of the country.' Mr. Lincoln said nothing more for some little time. Then, "'Don't you think this affair is getting to be a little too natural?' he suggested. "'I had some such idea, Mr. President,' replied Bethune. "'I was thinking,' said Mr. Lincoln, 
that if Stanton should come to the White House, and find me gone, and begin to inquire about, I was just thinking what would happen to that kinswoman of yours. Well, you would have to reckon with Mrs. Lincoln, replied Bethune. That's so, assented the President with a chuckle. Stanton is not much of a favorite with any of the family except me. But if Mrs. Lincoln should take alarm, then there would be trouble for the southern lady. This was the new phase of the affair. But Bethune felt that providence or fate had tied his hands. He could do nothing. They went forward rapidly for two or three miles. Then they heard a protesting voice. Hold on there, will you? Ain't you got no eyes in your blame noggin? I lay if I take a rock and knock you off in that barouche, you'll think you saw something. There was a light wagon in the road, to which a couple of horses were hitched. The driver of Bethune's carriage stopped his team, handed the reins to Mr. Sanders, and joined the complaining person, who was no other than John O'Mahundro, in the road. Wait, said the latter in a low tone. He put his hand into his ear and listened. I hear a cavalry squad coming. Jump in the carriage, turn around. There's plenty of room here, and drive back the way you came. Any danger for me? asked the driver. Not a bit in the world, responded O'Mahundro. Get a move on you. You want the cavalry to meet you with your horses' heads turned toward town. No time was lost in making this movement. The driver put the lash to the horses as they were making the turn, and when they met the squad of pursuing cavalry, the carriage was moving toward the city at a brisk trot. Halt! cried a commanding voice. Well, if you'd knowed you was halting, maybe you wouldn't be so uppity, exclaimed Mr. Sanders. The captain, making out the outline of Mr. Lincoln's hat, which the genial Georgian was wearing, cried out, is that you, Mr. President? For answer, Mr. Lincoln leaned his head from the window and said, Yes, it's me. What's the trouble? Any bad news from the front? Speak out, my man. I'm used to trouble. You seem to be excited. What is it? Why, Mr. President, Mr. Stanton is at the White House in a great state of alarm. He thinks you have been seized and carried off. He gave me orders to take ten men, pursue the carriage, and overtake it at all hazards. What, then? asked Mr. Lincoln. He took me aside, Mr. President, exclaimed the captain, and said, when you catch these villains, let your patriotism dictate your course. Well, what does your patriotism dictate? asked Mr. Lincoln dryly. I am under your orders, Mr. President. If you have done to give, I will have the honor of escorting you to the White House. It is unnecessary, replied Mr. Lincoln. Ride on ahead, and when you arrive at the White House, tell Secretary Stanton to disband his forces, horse, foot, and dragoons, Take down the barricades, and permit my friends and myself to enter on the terms that have always existed. The officer saluted in the dark, and was about to give the necessary orders, when Mr. Lincoln again spoke. What time is it? The officer struck a match, and looked at his watch. Ten-fifty, Mr. President. Thank you. The secretary was a notch or two ahead of time, Mr. Lincoln remarked. Yes, Mr. President. A man named Doyle arrived from the south tonight, and informed the secretary that two rebels— "'You mean Confederates, I reckon, Captain,' suggested Mr. Lincoln. Uh, "'Yes, Mr. President. Two Confederates had come to Washington for the purpose of kidnapping you. When he described the men, the Secretary made haste to the White House, summoning me as he went. When he arrived there, and found you had gone off with the very men accused by Doyle, you may imagine his excitement. "'Yes. I'm mighty glad I wasn't there. "'Well, Captain, you have acted with commendable energy, and I am under obligations to you.' Call on me some day at the White House. I want to have a talk with you. Thank you, Mr. President. I, I have simply done my duty. He wheeled his horse, gave a curt order to his detachment, and the small cavalcade was soon clattering toward the White House, where, in no long time, the captain reported to the secretary, who was still in a fury of rage and excitement. Did you seize the two spies? Where are they? he thundered. Under the circumstances, Mr. Secretary, I could but obey the commands of the president. Remain here with your men, Mr. Stanton said. Then, his fury getting the better of him, he paced up and down the floor, crying, Oh, he will ruin the country! Don't you think you had better restrain yourself, Mr. Secretary? asked Mrs. Lincoln, who, coming out of the state of alarm and apprehension into which she had been thrown by the wild and stormy excitement of Mr. Stanton, was now somewhat angry. Nothing but providence has saved your husband from those two spies and traitors, that is, if he is saved. They had everything planned to carry him off tonight. I don't believe a word of it, exclaimed Mrs. Lincoln. But every word is true, madam, declared Doyle, who was sticking as close to the secretary as he dared. They planned it in my presence in Richmond. I don't know you, replied Mrs. Lincoln. What were you doing in Richmond? 
serving my country to the best of my poor ability, ma'am. As a spy? There was so much scorn in the lady's voice that Doyle assumed a more chastened attitude. After a while, the carriage drove up, and the president, Bethune, and Mr. Sanders alighted. Mr. Lincoln was in high glee. As the carriage stopped, he was saying to Bethune, "'You remember when I asked you if the affair wasn't getting to be too natural, too real?' Bethune assented, but the president waited until they were near the portico of the White House. Then he continued, "'Well, I remember it, too. It reminds me of the fellow who set out to play ghost in his village. He had tolerable success, until he happened to run across a crabbed old fellow who had a good deal of money out at interest. The ghost says, "'Squire Brown, you've got too much money. What'll you do with it when you die?' Squire Brown gripped his hickory, and says, "'You talk lots too natural for a ghost.' And with that, he lit in and frailed the fellow out. Bethune had no time to digest the moral, which might or might not be attached to this brief narrative of a village incident. As the three walked into the light, Secretary Stanton cried out with a voice full of passion, "'Mr. President, I hope you are convinced that I was correct in what I said about those detestable spies. Captain Bird, do your duty.' But before the captain could make a movement, Mrs. Lincoln burst into a fit of uncontrollable laughter, in which she was joined by all except Mr. Stanton. Even the officer failed to maintain his dignity. Mr. Lincoln, tall and lank, was wearing Mr. Sanders's felt hat, which, slashed as it was, gave him the aspect of a pirate. On the other hand, Mr. Sanders was wearing Mr. Lincoln's tall beaver. It was tipped to one side a trifle, and this, together with the fact that he wore a bobtail jeans coat, added the last touch of the comic to his rotund figure. Mr. Lincoln joined in and led the laughter, and for several long minutes the hilarity ran high, while Mr. Stanton gazed with undisguised scorn and contempt upon the scene. Presently, taking advantage of a lull in the laughter, he cried in harsh, commanding tones, "'Captain Bird, arrest those men!' "'Why, what have we done, Stanton?' demanded Mr. Lincoln. "'What are we guilty of?' The secretary, with an angry gesture, turned to Doyle. "'Mr. President,' said Doyle, "'these men came here to seize you and carry you off. I am willing to make oath to that fact. But for the energy of Secretary Stanton tonight, their plot would have succeeded. What is your opinion, Captain Bird? What did you find when you came up with your detachment?' inquired Mr. Lincoln. "'Mr. President, we met the carriage on its way to the White House, and in accordance with your orders, hurried here in advance of it.' "'My friend,' said the President, turning to Doyle. If there was any plot to kidnap tonight, I'm the guilty party. That's so, Mr. President, Mr. Sanders solemnly asserted. You not only took us off, but you took my hat. It looked to me like mighty squally times up there in the dark road, but anyhow, I thank you kindly for fetching us back. Oh, you are more than welcome, friend Sanders. There's another thing I want to say to you, gentlemen, remarked Mr. Lincoln, straightening himself up. The less you say of this affair, the better. If it slips into the newspapers, I propose to see that the public get the straight of it. One thing more. These gentlemen here, Mr. Bethune and Mr. Sanders, are in Washington by my invitation. They are my guests. I am responsible for their conduct here, and whoever interferes with them will be held responsible by me. Captain Byrd, I thank you again for the energetic way in which you carried out your orders. If the Secretary of War has no more for you tonight, neither have I. Mr. Stanton had retired in disgust to the inner office, where the captain sought him, returning in a moment, to bid the president good night and to lead his squad of cavalry to their quarters. Mr. Doyle stood where the secretary had left him, and his embarrassment was so plain that Bethune, following one of his impulses, said, Mr. President, I think I can set Mr. Doyle right, but before I do so, I'd like to ask what grudge he bears me. Grudge? I have no grudge against you, Doyle asserted. Why did you try to use my own hand to entrap me? Why did you entrust me with a dispatch in which you committed me to the gallows, not for the good of the country, but for the advancement of yourself and your friend Autry? Why, I give you no such dispatch as that, Doyle asserted. Well, the President has a copy of it, remarked Bethune dryly. Mr. Lincoln looked at Doyle with a puzzled expression on his face. He seemed to be studying the man. It was a very embarrassing stare. What put the notion in your head? said the President, turning to Bethune with something like a sigh, that the gentleman needed to be set right with me. It struck me, Mr. President, that you might misunderstand him, considering all the circumstances, replied Bethune. No, 
I think I understand him perfectly. But he still continued to regard Mr. Doyle with the puzzled, melancholy expression on his face. But if you'll permit me to explain, Mr. President, Bethune persisted. But Mr. Lincoln shook his head and raised his long arm in a protesting gesture. No, not now. I'll have a talk with this gentleman at another time. You must excuse me now. Bethune, you and Mr. Sanders come into my private office. He bowed to Doyle and went out. As Bethune was following, Doyle caught him by the arm and detained him. What did you intend to say to him? he asked. Why, I intended and still intend to tell him the simple truth, replied Bethune. That you came to kidnap him? gasped Doyle. Why, certainly. I don't want him to believe that you are engaged in ensnaring men merely to advance your own fortunes. Do you think I'd do the like for you? inquired Doyle. Why, I never asked myself the question, replied Bethune, regarding the man with a smile. I owe you no goodwill, but I owe it to myself to be honest and straightforward. Now, answer me this. Why did you have men ready to follow me out of Richmond? Doyle hesitated, but finally spoke out. I wanted to make sure that you fell into the hands of the right parties when you reached Washington. If I had to do it all over again, it wouldn't be done. And I want to say to you that I'm glad I met you. Well, we have no time for compliments. Good night. Mr. Sanders was waiting for Bethune, and together they went into Mr. Lincoln's private office. The President and Mr. Stanton were in the larger room, and the tones of their voices coming through the door showed that they were conversing as if nothing unusual had occurred. Indeed, it seemed that Mr. Stanton had been, for the moment, entirely subdued. Presently, Mr. Lincoln came to the door. "'Sanders, you and Bethune come in here. I want you to see that my Secretary of War is not always ready to eat folks up.' Mr. Stanton greeted them in a friendly manner. He had his glasses off for the moment, and for the first time the two Southerners saw that in repose his features were cast in a genial mould, and that his eyes could command a kindly expression. "'Bethune,' said the President, "'what was that explanation you wanted to make about Doyle? Mr. Stanton seems to appreciate his abilities. I don't know how able he is, but that last part of his dispatch doesn't sound nice to me. Mr. Stanton agrees with me about this, but he says the first part is correct. The copy of the dispatch lay open on the table between the President and the Secretary. Mr. President, after what has happened tonight, taking everything as it occurred, I feel sure that you'll not misunderstand my motives when I say to you that the first part of Mr. Doyle's dispatch is correct. Bethune's tone was quiet but firm. I told you so, remarked Mr. Stanton with emphasis. Well, then why didn't you carry out your plan tonight? They had a very good reason, exclaimed the Secretary of War. Mr. President, said Mr. Sanders, suddenly and emphatically, there ain't enough cavalry in the fifty mile of this town to have kept us from carrying you off tonight. You know where we turned around? Well, right there was a light wagon, and all we had to do was hustle you in it. The man a-driving it knows every foot of ground betwixt here and Richmond. No doubt, said Mr. Lincoln. But why didn't you take advantage of all this? Mr. President, I would as soon kidnap my grandfather— or someone else equally dear to me, Bethune declared. But it was a great temptation. It was so, especially to a young feller, remarked Mr. Sanders. When the hosses turned, I fully expected Frank to stick his head out and use some words that you don't hear in parlors. And when he didn't, I never was so happy in my life. What we might have done if you hadn't gone and kidnapped yourself right before our face, I can't say. I'm like the fellow the mule kicked in the stomach. Says he, I seed her switch her tail, that I seed pintedly. What you done after that, I can't say. If you would only trust me, Mr. President, exclaimed Mr. Stanton. There was no bitterness in his voice. Why, I trust you precisely as far as I can trust myself, replied Mr. Lincoln earnestly. No man could do more. Would any other man do as much? The secretary made no reply. He resumed his spectacles and turned to Bethune. But why, now that the affair is over, do you come in here and admit what nobody could have proved? What is Doyle to you? Less than nothing, Mr. Secretary. I think the President understands my motives. Perfectly. Perfectly, said Mr. Lincoln. But I don't understand why you changed your mind when you had everything in your own hands. Well, I can only say this, Mr. President, that if the plain people of the South knew you as well as we know you, the war wouldn't last much longer. Mr. Lincoln arose from his chair and laid his hand on Bethune's shoulder. My son, he said solemnly, no human being ever did or ever can pay me a higher compliment than that. I wish all your people would take a month off and come up here to kidnap me. They are engaged in some such adventure now, remarked Mr. Stanton dryly. The President paid no attention to the remark, 
but walked about the room with his hands behind him and his head forward. Finally he paused and stood before Bethune and Mr. Sanders, his feet planted somewhat apart. "'I'll tell you, gentlemen, the honest truth,' he declared, raising his right arm high above his head. "'My heart bleeds night and day for every wound the war inflicts on both sides. If I know my own mind, I know no north and no south. All that I hope for and pray for is the Union, the Union preserved, and the Union at peace, with all factions and all parties working together for the glory and greatness of the Republic. I would, if I could, take the South in my arms and soothe all her troubles, and wipe out all the old difficulties and differences, and start the nation on a new career. I have the will, but not the power. He paused a moment, and then resumed with a smile. Stanton there says I'm a politician, and I reckon I am, but if I were nothing else I'd be ashamed of myself. Mr. President, said Bethune gravely, if we had found you to be a politician, petulant and intriguing, you wouldn't be here tonight. Ain't it the truth? exclaimed Mr. Sanders with unction. Well, Mr. President, remarked Mr. Stanton, arising from his chair, your friends are more agreeable than I supposed they would be. But hereafter I hope you will believe that I know what I am talking about. Why, I never doubted it, Mr. Lincoln declared, but you'll have to take me as you find me. The trouble with him, Mr. President, said Mr. Sanders, is that he's afraid he'll not be able to find you. The secretary regarded Mr. Sanders from behind his inscrutable glasses, smiled faintly, and exclaimed, Ain't it the truth? Then, as if the effort to mimic Mr. Sanders had thawed him out, he shook hands with the two Southerners, laughing softly to himself, and went out. The episode was sufficient to show that the great war secretary, and he was truly great in his line, could be agreeable when he chose to be. "'That's the only fun he's had since the war begun,' Mr. Lincoln asserted. Nothing more remains to be told. Bethune, Mr. Sanders, and Mrs. Elise Clopton had no difficulty in making their way south. They had an escort through the federal lines and were turned over to their compatriots under a flag of truce. End of Section 9